You are listening to the Bridge Community Church Podcast out of Warrington, Virginia. Our church exists to connect you to God, others, and the marketplace. For more information, you can visit us online at bridge4life.com. Thank you for listening, and we hope you are blessed by today's message. So today we're continuing on in the Christmas uh, series that we're doing, I'm doing called There Is Hope. And last week we looked at Matthew chapter 1, the first part of that, the genealogy of Jesus. We're going to pick up in Matthew 1 where uh, Mary and Joseph and uh, have that revelation and then also a prophecy given that his name will be called Emmanuel. So if everybody would stand for the reading of the word today. We're going to go right into Matthew 1, verses 18 through 23. Come on, everybody, let's read together. This is how the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, He had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins." All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. The Holy Spirit, we pray that you prepare our minds to receive, to learn, to grow, to be stretched. But we also ask that you open our hearts so that we will not only receive mentally, the, the things that are set, but we ask that our heart be open so that it can influence our values, our morals, our decisions, our expressions. In Jesus' name, and everybody said amen. 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 The Lord bless you. Be seated. So I'm going to give you a little bit of insight on preaching and teaching before I get into the message. Is that good with you today? So I want to, give you, I want to provide you a little insight. So one of, the, one of the things, at least from how I approach the scripture, is this. It's important to get into the context, the history. And so a, a lot of uh, time, is, at least from how I do it, I'm preparing. I'm learning things about the history of a particular scripture. Why is that important? Because as we study the scriptures, our history that we know as Americans is so far removed from the history of the Bible that it takes a lot more effort on our part to learn the content. And we had a Christmas party the other night, and they did a quiz on Pastor Gregisms. <laughs> and it was very interesting to learn what the leadership thought of me. <laughs> and they said, one of Pastor Greg's most famous quotes is, and it, you know, now I have to use it, see, is text without context leads to... Yeah, it's a premise that I just got. If you don't, if you don't get the context... Okay, you can pretty much get the scripture to go any direction that you want it to go. go. And, and I say this not as not trying to provoke you know something needlessly, 
But this is why so many churches are able to take scriptures and go different directions because they just they don't pay attention to the context. They just read it and then they're just using their own background. They might refer to some church fathers and you're like, no, you need to go all the way back to the history of when it was spoke. And because providing context is, is crucial. Now, the dilemma as a pastor who's a teacher now also, okay, my dilemma is this, how much information do I pass on to you? Otherwise, this just becomes one gigantic history lesson. And, you know, I know who the history buffs in our congregation are because they come and tell me, the more time you spend in history, and I go, yeah, but you got to realize we got a lot of people in the congregation who got C's and D's in history, and that was American history. And you can only imagine what a stretch it is for them to hear about Jewish history. You know, it's just like, whoa. I mean, to them, that's a whole time warp thing for them, okay? But it's somewhat crucial, especially in the day that we live, to go a little more further into the history of a scripture. Why? Because of how we are, what we're seeing today, so many, bending, so many people bending the scriptures to fit an agenda. And so I have to decide, how much do I relay to you? Because people want to know, how did you come to that conclusion? How can you make that proclamation? And that's a fair question. So I feel it's, it needs to be said, well, here's the context of what was going on. So today, as we look at a scripture... Real dilemma. I have more history to give you than I normally do. Now, I know some of you just went, yes, and some of you just went, no. But you'll, hopefully you'll see, i got to really tell you a story that's behind this particular scripture that we're going to be addressing, where it says that he will be conceived of a virgin and his name will be called Emmanuel. Man, there is a whole story behind that. And you notice, he tells the story of Mary and Joseph, of her showing up pregnant out of wedlock, and they're trying to sort this thing out, and the angel of the Lord appears, and all these kinds of things, and relays the, the fears of, of Joseph, and so he's going to take her home and, as his wife, and the scripture that is used is, this is Isaiah 7.14. Now, it's crucial to know that this is Matthew. Matthew is a priest who backslid and went to work with the occupying army of his nation, Rome. So he was a betrayer of faith and of his people. Now we know that he became a follower of Christ, accepted the Lord as his Savior and became a follower, and now he's writing the Gospel of Matthew to prove to other Jews, this is how I can show you that Jesus is the Messiah. You don't have to take my word on it. I can prove to you that he's the Messiah. So he writes what he does. And again, most people in their culture read that and got it because that was their history. You and I go, what was the history? See the pronouncement, but I don't know the history. So we're going to back this up a little bit, and I'm going to lay the foundation of why this Isaiah 7.14 was such a crucial scripture to the Jewish people and why it was included in the gospel. So here's what he said as a result of telling the story of Mary and Joseph. It says, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. This comes from Isaiah 7.14. If you have a Bible that has footnotes, you'll see that there's a little notation. And so it reads in Isaiah, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and call him Emmanuel. 
So most of us will turn over to Isaiah, read that scripture, go, oh, it was prophesied, and then back to Matthew we go, and we just continue on. And I would just say there's a whole story there that you don't know about of why that scripture is so profound. You go, well, it's because he was born of a virgin. Yeah, but you don't know the context of why Isaiah even said that and why the people had been, been taught this verse and why they have hung on to it. So let's go into that. So here goes your history lesson. You ready? I, I could use a little more enthusiasm in the room. All right, all right, here we go. Now I'm telling you, there's a, it's a long story, but I'm going to try to tell it so that you get the full effect and the appreciative nature of that scripture. So it is now 30, 734 B.C., and Ahaz is king of Judah. Now I'm going to divulge, or, uh, uh, just divert a little bit. Israel has had a civil war, north versus south, and it wasn't resolved. Some of the tribes broke off up north, and they called it Israel. Some of the tribes in the south broke off, and they called themselves Judah. Here's where it gets confusing. Judah ended up with Jerusalem. Israel did not have Jerusalem. So when you're reading these parts of Scripture, you have to know that you're talk, when you talk about Israel, Israel doesn't have Jerusalem. How many know that really gets confusing? And that Judah has Jerusalem. And that's crucial because they have the temple and the worship, and it creates a dilemma for the tribes up north on whether to cross the line and come down and worship in Jerusalem. So it's sort of a, there's a division on, on the national level, but their spiritual roots go back to Jerusalem. So it's a real, it's a tension full time. Everybody got that? Ahaz comes king. He was about 20 years old. And uh, he reigned for 16 years. You can read about his story as I'm going to paraphrase this in 2 Chronicles 28, 2, Chron or 2 Kings 16. And most people don't know his story is also in Isaiah chapter 7 through 12. And we're going to be looking at this. So what's the story about King Ahaz of Judah? When he became king, he was dead set against the faith of his father and the faith of the nation. He was kind of a guy who was laying in, in the shadows waiting. And when he became king, he didn't skip a beat and he didn't, he didn't hesitate. He immediately let it be known that he was completely opposed to the religious beliefs and practices of the nation. Wasn't a committee, wasn't a vote. He just came right out of the gate, age 20. I don't like our God. I don't like our temple. I don't like our worship. And being king, he could make pronouncements and change things. And it literally shocked the people because things literally spun overnight. He immediately stopped the temple worship and its services. Just stopped it. Why? Because he's king. He gets to do that. He then decided that they needed other gods. So he created and circulated idols for worshiping Baal. He reestablished pagan sacrifices and the burning of incense at high places. He built a replica altar of a god that he saw in Assyria, and he sent back the diagram and said, I want the altar built in the temple before I get back. And it was done. He also began the practice of sacrificing children to the god of Moloch, which was the god of Ammon. Literally, this thing flips on a dime. One day they're worshiping God, the next day it's closed. And now they're being, all these various gods are being forced down people's throats 
And you can imagine the disillusionment. Like, what's happened? How did, because this guy was, was the son of a good king. They didn't understand why this guy pivoted so hard. So, like any king who starts making bad decisions, it's not confined to one arena of life. Have you ever noticed that when leaders make bad decisions, they decide to continue making more bad decisions? <laughs> they never like, whoa, maybe I'm wrong. No, the problem is it's them, it's bad timing, it's this. They all blame external circumstances, not my fault, wrong place, wrong time, it's them, they're not supporting me, they're saying this. Of course, I always notice too, the same person when something goes right, they take all the credit. And he was the same way. So it wasn't too long because of his decision making, even as it regards to his name, he got sideways with some other kings in the, arena, in, the, in the area, and they declared war on him. So he went to battle against Rezin, king of Aram, and Pekah, king of Israel, the northern kingdom that broke away, okay? In one day, he had 120,000 of his soldiers killed, and 200,000 were captured. That, my friend, is a bad day. 120,000 of his soldiers killed, and 200,000 were taken captive. Because he was determined that he was right, and he was willing to sacrifice people to make sure that his way prevailed. He would not listen to people. He, would not, he did not receive counsel. He just continued to make bad decisions after bad decision. Now, you can imagine if something like that happened in our nation where we lost 120,000 soldiers and 200,000 of our soldiers were captured in, 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 in with, let's just say in a year. Do you know how devastating that would be to our nation? Can you imagine a nation that size having that happen? Literally, the male population has been removed. So the way he salvaged himself, he struck a deal with the Assyrians and they saved him. But unannounced, they just show up in Jerusalem, and they decided that payment would be all the treasure that was in the temple, and they stripped the place. He didn't agree to it, they just did it because they could, and they knew that he couldn't stop them. So they just took all, so now he's lost all of his army, he's lost all the male fighting men, and now he's lost the wealth of the nation. Now the temple's been closed, but at least he still had the wealth. Now he's lost the national treasure. When he died, nobody cried. Shocker. When he died, they did bury him in Jerusalem. But they considered him of such disgrace that they would not bury him in the royal sepulcher of kings. They said he doesn't deserve the burial that other kings get. That would be basically like, hey, they're going to be burying Arlington. No, he's too disgraceful. We're just going to go find some place in the D.C. area and bury him. Whether it has a marker or not, we don't care. We're just going to bury him. But he doesn't get Arlington. No way. He was a disgrace. So, in the middle of all this calamity, it's actually right before he goes to battle against those two kings where he was literally wiped out as, as, a, as a military power. 
God sends Isaiah as a prophet to speak to Ahaz. How many would love to have a conversation with that guy? You know, as a prophet, I'd be going, you gotta have somebody else, God, that can talk to this guy. He listens to no one. He's a train wreck. He can't negotiate. He messes, everything he touches is messed up and the people are suffering devastation. Please, God, find somebody else to talk to this guy. And besides, why would I talk to him? He's not going to listen. And God says, you're going to go talk to Ahaz. That would be an awkward conversation. So we're going to go to Isaiah chapter 7. And I'm going to read the scripture. And I want you to see what God tells Isaiah to tell Ahaz. Everybody still with me this morning? Okay, so we're backing up a little bit now. This is right before the big battle where he lost everything. What does God have to say to a rogue king? You're going to find out. Here we go. Isaiah chapter 7, beginning in verse 1. When Ahaz, son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, was king of Judah, King Rezin of Aram and Pekah, son of Ramaliah, king of Israel, marched up to fight against Jerusalem, but they could not overpower it. Now the house of David was told, Aram has allied itself with Ephraim. Now Ephraim is one of the tribes in the northern kingdom, okay? So the hearts of Ahaz and his people were shaken as the trees of the forest are shaken by the wind. So everybody smells death on the horizon. The guy has a history of imploding everything that he touches. And now we're going to go against these massive armies. Everybody knows what's going to happen. We're going to die. That's what's going to happen here. We're going to die. And he doesn't care. That's why everybody was shaking. Verse 3, then the Lord said to Isaiah, go out, you and your son, Shir Jashub, to me Ahab, Ahaz at the end of the aqueduct of the upper pool on the road to the launderer's field. How's that for directions? <laughs> let, me, let me contextualize. Ahaz is like any leader who's in trouble. When you're successful, where are the cameras, where are the reporters? When you're in trouble, you look for anonymity anywhere you can find it. Because you don't want to talk to people, you don't want to be asked questions, you don't want to be accountable, and Ahaz is no different. This is a very, very bad time. So he decides to go out to the launderer's field. Nobody's going to look for the king there. Except God tells Isaiah. He's in the launderer's field. What, the king? Yeah, you're king. The king who has people to do the laundry. Your king is hiding out in the launderer's field. You just walk right on out there and you have this conversation with him and I'm going to tell you what you need. It just goes to show you leaders can't hide. They can even stick themselves in a hole in the ground and God will still find that leader. Can't hide. Okay, anyway, I'm getting back. i got to go back. Say to him, be careful, keep calm, and don't be afraid. Now, I'm here to tell you, I would be going, are you kidding me? This guy's wicked. You need to be saying just the opposite. Repent or else. Be careful, keep calm, don't be afraid. Don't lose heart because of these two smoldering stubs of firewood. Because the fierce anger of Rezin and Aram and the son of Romalia. 
Aram, Ephraim, and Ramalia's son have plotted your ruins, saying, Let us invade Judah. Let us tear it apart and divide it among ourselves and make the son of Tabeel king over. They had already, listen, they already had the replacement. They, they, that's how confident they were that this, this guy, everything he touches implodes. So, hey, he's a, he, we're going to win. So who are we going to put in? They already know who they're putting in. Yet this is what the sovereign Lord says. It will not take place. It will not happen. Now, if I'm Ahaz, I'm like, yeah, God. I mean, I, okay, I haven't been the greatest king in the world. Okay, I've been the worst king in the world. That's where I would pause and go, thank you, God, for giving me a second shot. You have every reason not to have my back. And you're going to have my back. That would be my response. That's not Ahaz. For the head of Aram is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is only resin. Within 65 years, Ephraim will be, will be too shattered to be a people. The head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is only Ramalia's son. If you do, listen, oh, this is a great quote. If you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. If you got a Bible, let me encourage you to underline that, underline it, highlight it. Because in tough times, that's what you got to have. If you don't stand firm in your faith, you will fall for anything. Stand firm in your I'm like, man, this has got to this has just got to lead to a, a divine appointment with Ahaz, right? Like, wow. He's he's out in the wanderer's field and he's getting this profound counsel from Isaiah. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. Listen, ask the Lord your God for a sign, whether in the deepest depths or the highest heights. God says to him this, I know that this is unbelievable what I'm saying. As bad as you have been, that what you're hearing is unbelievable. So God says, ask me for a sign. And I will show you that I have your back. With as wicked as you have been, I'll back you. Just ask. What's Ahaz's response? I will not ask and I will not put the Lord to the test. He says, I'm not interested in what God has to say. I don't care. I'm not talking to God. So there is no test. You assume that I'll do the test because I'm talking to God. I'm not talking to him. So I am not going to test him. I don't care. How many would love to be living under that guy? Willing to roll his whole nation under the bus because he doesn't want to admit he's wrong and that he needs to change. So, what's the response? Now, you notice I'm getting close to verse 14. Notice that? All right. Then Isaiah said, Hear now, you house of David. Notice the exclamation point. It has now gone from God wants to help you to watch out, pal. You just crossed the line with God and you're not going to like what you're about to hear. 
Is it not enough to try the patience of humans? Will you try the patience of God also? Uh, you, those are words you never want to hear from God's prophet. Okay, this is now, the tone has gone to God's willing to help you. Whoa, God's now going to judge you. Now verse four. Remember he said, ask for a sign, and he said, I'm not asking, because I'm not talking to you. Therefore, so God says this, if you're not gonna ask for a sign, I'm going to give you one. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son. You will call him Emmanuel. He will be eating curds and honey. That is the diet of royalty. He will be eating curds and honey when he knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right. For before the boy knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right, the land of the two kings you dread will be laid waste. So let me back this up. Ahaz is, notice when the prophet confronted, he says, of the house of David. Ahaz knew that he was going to be part of the lineage of the coming Messiah because he belonged to the house of David. He was such a manipulator, he had come to this conclusion. If I don't cooperate with God's promises, if I don't cooperate with what God wants to do, then God can't bring his Messiah. God needs my cooperation to bring the Messiah. So therefore, since my cooperation is required, I am more powerful than God. And God says, I'll, I'll, raise, I'll raise you one with that challenge. You think I have to have your cooperation to bring my son into the world. Guess what? I'll give you a sign. The virgin will conceive. I don't need you. She can get pregnant without you. And he said, and that's my sign. Ahaz, you negotiated wrong. You're going to lose the deal. And even though it is your intent to break the lineage of the coming Messiah, I got news for you. He's coming anyway. And I will do it without a man's cooperation. I don't, God was saying, I do not need man to fulfill my promises. If man doesn't want to cooperate, I will still have a way around man. And folks, that's what the scripture meant when Isaiah said it. Now we launch ourselves into Matthew chapter 1. The Roman army is occupying their nation. The nation is a mess Everybody that is in power is on the take because the Romans appointed them. And if you don't cooperate with Roman power, you can't be in government. And so the people are going, this is a mess. If there's ever a time that we think that there cannot be a Messiah, it is now. Have you seen what's in our nation? They've disrupted everything. Who knows who's what? And, and Matthew shows that in the midst of that chaos, 
The verse that was given in the midst of the chaos is now reapplied 734 years later. And God says, oh, Israel, please listen to me. We don't need man to cooperate to get God's stuff done. She can conceive as a virgin. And she does. That's why, the, that's why that verse is brought back in. So let me give you now three quick insights about that whole story. You ready? Number one, read it out loud. God is working among Somehow we think, oh God, we've got this leader. Oh God, we've got, and listen, it happens every presidential cycle. It happens every congressional cycle. There's people cheering and there's people who are moaning and groaning and then it flips and you got these people moaning. And, these, and the bottom line is this. I don't care if it's Republican, Democrat, Independent, Socialist, Communist, Monarchy. It doesn't matter their title of government wherever they are in the world. God is talking to the leaders comma it doesn't mean the leaders are always talking to God but he's talking Ahaz he wasn't talking to God God says you think you cannot you like you can stop me from talking to you he got Isaiah and he said yeah go out to the launderer's field he's hiding there today And then, and then you compare that to the story of Matthew, there's this guy, King Herod. He doesn't care about faith, religion, God. It's all about him. Listen, he is such a narcissist. When he thought that somehow this Jesus that was going to be born was going to be a threat to his kingdom, he orders every male child under two years of age in the, in the town of Bethlehem executed. That's about as godless as you can get. And God sends three magi in there to talk to him. Three magi that weren't even from his kingdom. They were from another part of the world. Listen to me. God is always talking to the world leaders. Now, I'm like you. I have oftentimes counseled God. How many of you have ever counseled God? You counsel God. Could we see a little more of what you're doing? Could we see a little more of what you're saying? God, could you get in there? And really what we're saying is, let me see what you're telling them. Because, you know, the news is editing all this stuff out. I don't know what they're hearing. And see. And can we just, listen, we just need to have the confidence. God talks to the leaders. In the book of Daniel, a hand show up, shows up and writes on the wall. I don't know about you. That would cause most of us to fall flat on our face before God. A hand shows up and just starts writing on the wall. Listen, God always talks to leaders. This is why we come to this passage where it's Paul writing, it's 1 Timothy chapter 2, and Nero is in power. Nero is a horrible world leader. He has set Rome on fire, he has blamed the Christians, and now he can execute them at will, whether it be in the arena with the wild animals or the gladiators, he can put them, he's putting them on crosses and having them burned alive. And they're the societal scapegoat. You guys are the ones who burnt Rome down. And they weren't, but they were accused of that. And most people were believing it. 
So what's Paul's response about how do you pray for world leaders that bad? I urge then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. You know, I just want to advise, you know, to me, I come back to, hey, God, where's the judgment part? Like, you know, turn or burn. You know, where's... God doesn't say that. Look at this. This is good and pleases God our Savior who wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. I'm going to give you something that's really hard to swallow. God never told us to pray against our leaders. See, now now we're entering into the realm of Christianity where it gets really uncomfortable. God always says, pray for your leaders. Because this is good, and this pleases God our Savior. Praying for them is not approving of them. Praying for them is recognizing their deficiencies and asking God to help the leader with the deficiencies. Praying for a leader is not saying, I agree with them. It doesn't, listen, hey, can we just be honest? We're in church, huh? Have you, are you like me? There are some people that you find extremely hard to like. I guess then you're just more holier than I am. Yeah, yeah, sometimes I go, I don't understand. Why would you you decide that knowing it's going to hurt so many people? I don't get that. I don't get it. Why would you do that? I'll tell you, I have a hard time liking some people. But then that's where my area of discipleship starts. Because I'm not to pray against them, I am to pray for them. I can tell that went over really well this morning. Number two, read this out loud. God's promises were in motion for you before you were born. One of the things that we have in our mind is... My destiny didn't start until I was born. No, there was a destiny that was assigned to you and you were born into it. God's promises were in motion before you took your first breath. You don't ask God to join the momentum of your life. You ask God to help you join his momentum for your life. This again is why we have Isaiah 7, 13, 14. Then Isaiah said, Hear now, you house of David, is it not enough to try the patience of humans? Will you try the patience of my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. God established a momentum for Jesus 734 years in advance of his breath. He was joining a promise, a momentum that God had already started. It was up to Jesus to conform to the momentum that God had already created for his life. The Apostle Paul recognized this. In Galatians 1, 15 and 16, But when God, who set me apart from my mother's womb and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, my immediate response was not to consult any human being. Paul was a guy who was so devout as a Jew 
He kept the Gentiles out. In his conversion to Christ, he recognizes the people he's been keeping out were the people that God called him to. And he says, and now I see it was, it was already there the day I took my first breath. I was set apart from the Gentiles in my mother's womb. He recognizes that God had a momentum of his, by the way, this is one of those questions I have for Paul. Like, what was your early childhood like that when you wrote that, you, rec- you look back and went, oh man, I've been fighting the Gentiles my whole life ever since I was a kid. And now I realize that God was just using that to help me understand and be familiar with them so I could reach them. I wonder how many childhood friends were Gentiles. And Paul befriended it until he got into the religion and realized he needed to put in it. And God made him familiar with the Gentiles. He showed them that they were human beings and that he loved them. And God brought that all back on him and said, oh man, I've had your whole life under the microscope preparing you to go to these Gentiles. You say, well, what's that got to do with me? What are my promises? See, how about, how about I show you the, mo- the things that God already had in motion for your life before you took your breath? Anybody interested? Good, we're up to about 20 there. Here we go. Some people say, yeah, right, God had a plan for me before I took my breath. God had a momentum for my life before I took a breath. Yeah, he did. I'll show you. Galatians 3, verses 8 through 9. Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith. Most of you here this morning have no Jewish heritage whatsoever. I know of a few that are, but basically most of you are just good old Gentiles. Okay? God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. Oh, man, I've had people say, I wish I was of Jewish heritage and had that promise. And I go, whoa, you didn't finish reading your Bible, did you? (laughs) So those who rely on faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Jesus says, when you accepted me, all the promises of Abraham came to you. People that bless you, they'll be blessed. People that curse you will be cursed. Oh, he he doesn't stop there. Look at verse 14. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. Notice that the blessing given to Abraham is extended to those Gentiles who accept Jesus as their Lord and Savior. He will bless those who bless you. He will curse those who curse you. And through you, all nations will be blessed. You had a momentum before you ever took your first breath. The only question that you have to decide today is, am I going to cooperate with that momentum or am I determined to try to create my own momentum like an Ahaz? And everybody said amen. Amen. Last one, last point, promise, this is it. I'm gonna wrap it up, here we go. Read it out loud. God God can redeem a negative momentum in your life. I shared a lot on the genealogy of Jesus last week and some of the people that were included in that, the Bathshebas, the Rahabs, that were included, and how he, they had a different story. 
But remember what I told you Ahaz said, if God has to have my cooperation for his promises to happen, then I guess that makes me more powerful than God. If you go through the genealogy there in Matthew, it's really somewhat ironic. Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat, the father of Jehoram, Jehoram, the father of Uzziah, Uzziah, the father of Jotham, Jotham, the father of Ahaz, Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. Ahaz is in the genealogy of the Messiah. You never read Jesus blaming his heritage. You know, I'd be the Messiah, but then I had this one relative. <laughs> Ahaz, he put a curse on all of us, man. He just, he just messed it up. And every generation since Ahaz has been fighting this oppression. Every generation since Ahaz, we've been dealing with, I mean, people in Israel still use Ahaz as the worst possible example for whatever is occurring in society. You know, it's our relative. I just get tired of people using one of my relatives that cast a shadow on all of us. You know, you need to finish the story of Ahaz because he had a son named Hezekiah. And Hezekiah brought revival back to Judah. He restored the house of God. His dad totally took the nation to the brink of extinction. Literally, to the brink. And Hezekiah restored the nation, restored the faith, the faith restored the temple, restored the practices of worship. One generation said, it stops with me. And Ahaz will not control the destiny of this family. Ahaz will be an anomaly in this family. But Ahaz will not be the standard of this family. Hezekiah said, that's me. I'm the change. I'm the one. Because Jotham, Ahaz's father, was a godly man too. Ahaz thought he could derail it all. Can, let me just say, let me wrap this up. We run into people from day to day that tell us that the momentum of their life is off. You don't know the circumstances that I was born into. You don't know what's happened to me. I was fine until I was, somebody violated them in some way. You don't know what happened when a violent crime occurred in me, against me or my family. You don't know what happened when there was this untimely death, when something tragic happened in our family, when somebody did X, Y, Z. You don't understand the negative momentum that happened in my life and now we have this negative thing hanging over us. Can I change, tell you? He changes the negative momentum. You're not stuck with that. Hezekiah wasn't stuck with that. The Son of God said, yeah, I'm related to Ahaz, but he does not define my life. I'll wrap this up. This past week, man, heard so many great stories. But one particular guy that had the opportunity to hear him, he's got this uh, halfway house. He's not in this region. He's got this halfway house, and 
He's taken convicted felons when they get out. And he's, it's a place where they can get their legs under them. And, and he, I mean, he, these people are being changed. The, ju- the judge of the court refers felons to him. When it's time, you know, for the relief, he refers these felons to him. The police of their own fruition, not, not as an organization, but as individual police officers support him. And so the opportunity and conversation just to have with him, how did, how did you get a judge and police officer? Not, they're not doing it as an organization. They're doing it because they, as a person, they see this is working. He says, well, my story's pretty simple, Pastor. He said, I did 10 years for armed robbery. Flat. No chance, probation. He said, I'm the guy that never knew about Jesus, but I found out about Jesus in prison. And I'm one of those guys, jailhouse conversion, but it was the real deal. And I got out. He said, you have no idea how many people don't even know about a Jesus. And I started this. I want want them to, and he said, I want them to know that they're not stuck with a negative momentum. And that's where I got my point. I went, oh, I'm using that Sunday. (laughs) I said, yeah, but how did you get the judge? He said, let me tell you the other part of it. The judge who supports me is the judge who sentenced me. And he said, I got out in 2013, did 10 years lost everything, lost my marriage, I lost everything. Now I've been doing this for nine years. I just want them to know they're not stuck with a bad momentum. How simple is that? Some people think, why try? What's the use? I've done too much bad. I've got this. Can I just tell you, you've had things happen. Maybe get, maybe because you made bad decisions. Maybe it was, you had nothing to do with it. It just happened. You're not stuck. And you're the person that can be, decide, am I going to be Ahaz or am I going to be Hezekiah? Change the momentum with God's help in your life. And everybody say amen to that. Come on, let's stand across this place as we wrap up the service. Can we just lift our hands? Come on, church. Praise Him for a God who changes momentums in people's lives. If He doesn't change people's momentums, then He can't be God. God can change momentums. Come on, praise Him for that.